When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Low Countries Radio, a collaboration between Republic of Amsterdam Radio and the Low Countries website. Celebrating Flemish and Dutch history and culture and its impact on the world today. In this episode of the Low Countries Radio, we are going to get out the drawing board, put on a hard hat, and clamber up a scaffold of creative construction so that we may cast our view on a few of the most striking, unique, or just plain weird buildings that can be found in Belgium and the Netherlands and explore some of the schools of thought that have come to influence architecture in our beloved little swamp. Our survey will take us from pyramids in forests to forests in cities, scoping out architectural expressions of nature's bounty from great diamonds to explosive molecules. But, we hear you saying, how on earth can the meaningfulness of architecture, a very visual medium of design, be conveyed on a podcast? Well, Dear listeners, of course, you will be able to find images of all the structures we speak about on our website, republicofamsterdamradio.com, as well as on the-low-countries.com. And of course, there is something we've heard about called Google. But as with all human endeavors, it is actually the stories behind the buildings that help pour the meaning in as if floating cement to make a sure and steady base. So, as is our custom here on the Low Countries Radio, to help me, Joe Wegasani, pour that cement and lay the piping for this episode, it is now time for me to introduce Julian Smith to the microphone. Hello, Julian. Hello, Joe. Hello, listeners. So I'm looking at the blueprints of this episode, and I think that we should begin with an entirely unexpected building in an entirely unexpected place, the Pyramid of Austerlitz. Yes, you did hear that correctly. I did say pyramid, and I did say Austerlitz. Let me explain. In 1804, the Netherlands was under French occupation. During the French Revolutionary Wars, revolutionary armies, with help from domestic Dutch so-called patriots, engineered a collapse of the Dutch Republic, which became a client state of France known as the Batavian Republic. 
the low countries, not for the first time or the last time, became the perceived buffer zone between Britain and the rest of the continent. To fill the important role of commander of the French army in the Netherlands, the notoriously nepotistic Napoleon chose a trusted and personal friend of his, General Auguste de Marmont. To be fair, Marmont had probably earned his stripes more than others in the Napoleonic regime. He had known and been friends with Napoleon since his early 20s. He served as his aide-de-camp, he stuck with him through thick and thin in Italy and Egypt, and he would continue to serve the new French Empire with distinction until the point at which he would eventually become seen as a traitor to Napoleon. But that was in the future for this tale. When Marmont arrived in the Netherlands in 1804 to take command of the troops, he found the army to be an undisciplined and dispersed force of men who were living in terrible conditions and whose behaviour and cohesion were not up to his strict standards. So he set about bringing in a bit of cultural development. He went and claimed a chunk of land for France, just east of Utrecht, between the towns of Zeist and Waldenburg, and he set up what became known as French Camp which sounds like some terrible summer camp school children would get sent to. In French camp, he assembled his force and spent the summer of 1804 whipping them into shape. As he would later describe it, he created, quote, the nicest camp in the world with the best trained army, end quote. They worked hard and they played hard. For example, being put to work creating an amphitheater, Marmont then hired Parisian comedy troops to perform for the soldiers' benefit. With the style of his approach, it seems like Marmont would have fit in as a 21st century tech startup CEO, certainly being one for thinking outside the box. As the summer of 1804 came to a close, the weather remained fine, which was surprising given we're talking about the Low Countries. And this prompted the decision that the army would remain in the Netherlands for a little bit longer. But Marmont needed another project to keep his 18,000 troops occupied, because he felt that idle hands do the devil's work. But he was also French, so he loved a monument, and this is exactly what he decided that they should build. Casting his mind upon his experiences as a campaigner for Napoleon, and upon the different places that he had visited and the things that he had seen in his time as a military man, Marmont decided that the monument that the Netherlands really needed to remember and honour the revolutionary French occupation was a piece of architecture that he had seen on the Egyptian campaign. A pyramid. From its conception, Marmont had big aspirations for the pyramid, and he was willing to invest heavily in it. He wrote of it, quote, It would create an effect in this region, for in a flat country like Holland, a pyramid of such gigantic dimensions would appear to be a veritable mountain, end quote. Amen to that. He paid for the land that the pyramid was to be built on out of his own pocket and put his soldiers to work in constant shifts. Now, he didn't necessarily have the resources of ancient Egyptian pharaohs, nor the skilled artisans of ancient Egyptian society. Also, he was in the Netherlands, so there wasn't exactly a lot of stone. Instead, he decided to have the pyramid built out of turf and soil, with plans to later give it a stone veneer. 
It took his army just 27 days to finish the 36-meter-tall pyramid. And as the cherry on top of it, he stuck a 13-meter wooden obelisk protruding from its apex. Marmont foresaw his pyramid standing forever, just like the real deals back in Egypt had. He hired three soldiers, gave them and their families a house and an annual salary, and settled them in with the job of permanently protecting the pyramid. Napoleon's brother Louis, who would soon after this become the first king of Holland, later named the pyramid in honour of his brother's victory in the Battle of Austerlitz, which is the former name of a Czech town today called Slavkov. Now, you might think that a pyramid in the Low Countries, named after a battle in the Napoleonic Wars, would be a unique thing. But you would be wrong, for there is another commemorating the defeat of Napoleon called the Lion's Mound. After escaping from exile in Elba with a force of 700 men in February 1815, Napoleon had landed in France, and when he was confronted by an army that was sent to capture him, he met them with the epic words, If any of you will shoot his emperor, here I am. This display of bravery convinced the army not to, in fact, shoot him, but rather to rejoin his cause, help him get back to Paris, and sensationally return to power. During this so-called Hundred Days, Napoleon was able to amass an army of 200,000 men and go on the offensive in the Low Countries. He was hoping that he could defeat them individually before they were able to join forces and invade France. The result, however, was the decisive defeat of Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo on June 18, 1815, during which the future King of the Netherlands, William II, was wounded. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most important military victories of the 19th century. It was one of those battles which truly shaped the course of European history. The First French Empire was no more. Napoleon was defeated, for good this time, and there would be no more major outbreak of international conflict in Europe until the Crimean War, some four decades later. To commemorate the victory, the King of the United Netherlands, William I, decided to build, you guessed it, another pyramidical mound of earth on the Waterloo battlefield, the Lion's Mound, which was completed in 1826. The Lion's Mound is even bigger than the Pyramid of Austerlitz, standing at 43 metres high and with a circumference of 520 metres. It was positioned on the location where his son, William II, was shot in the shoulder. At its top is a giant metal lion with its right paw placed on a globe as a symbol of the world's victory over Napoleon. Now, neither the Pyramid of Austerlitz nor the Lion's Mound reflect the typical architecture of the Low Countries. Yet, in some way, these random pyramids, rising proudly from a Dutch forest and a Wallonian field, can be seen to represent so much about the varying building designs that can be found in and around the Low Countries. This is an architecture scape which is full of surprises, bears wide-ranging influences, and can be found in the oddest of places. In 
In some particular locations, it is quite easy to see how the development of architecture reflects the place's history and the general experiences of its inhabitants. Rotterdam is perhaps the best example of this in the Low Countries. Modern industrialization in the Netherlands happened rather later than in other European countries, really taking shape over the latter half of the 19th century. Rotterdam had by then become the biggest port in the country, supplanting Amsterdam, whose own economy was shifting from being a trade-based one to a service-based one. Between 1880 and 1900, Rotterdam's population doubled to 330,000 people, and by 1939, this number had roughly doubled again. Despite the city's prosperity as a port, very little of that money was going into workers' pockets, and the average income was lower than any other Dutch city. More to the point of our topic, the city was not in any shape, architecturally speaking, to accommodate such growth. The centre of Rotterdam had not been constructed for modern times, but was rather the result of redevelopment that had happened in the 18th century, when urban needs were very, very different. The historic town on the north bank of the Maas River was the purview of the wealthy urban elite. With the steep increase in population, all those poorer workers had to live outside the centre, mainly on the South Bank, where private and for-profit housing companies built shoddy, cheap housing estates. As social academic Magdalena Mostovska put it in her essay, City Policies and Avant-Garde of Architects, Rotterdam, an example of pre-war modern architecture, quote, it was private businessmen, owners, and profiteers who had the most to say. The city was determined to make more affluent taxpayers stay, end quote. But those workers were not going anywhere, especially as Rotterdam continued to expand its industrial and shipping capacities into the 20th century, and the lack of affordable housing became an acute problem. In 1917, the federal government began to make laws that obliged local councils to follow the advice of municipal health boards. Because of this, if a local health board said, for instance, that every residence had to have access to at least one toilet, then the city government had to make sure that this was the case. Well, Rotterdam City Council refused to oblige with this ordinance, which meant that the local health board promptly, in the words of Mostovska, quote, went to war, end quote, against it, issuing loads of inspection checks and fines. This opened the door for independent socialist and more progressive construction initiatives, which were not confined just to Rotterdam, by the way. A bunch of parallel schools of design that focused on making cheap, affordable housing for the working class began to emerge and grow in the low countries at this point. The Amsterdam School is a well-known native movement from the period. Architects from this school of thought sought to achieve organic and curved buildings out of brick and decorative masonry that could be lumped into the wider expressionist movement. Another famous design movement that emerged at this time was de style, or as it is less stylishly known in English, neoplasticism.
Neoplasticism employs straight lines, cubes, and squares, but also only utilizes primary colors and the so-called non-colors black and white. The style had originally emerged or solidified as a school of design in Leiden, but it was quickly adopted by artists all around the country, including perhaps its most famous proponent, Piet Mondrian. If you can recall any famous paintings you've seen that are just red and blue and yellow squares and lines, that's probably a Mondrian. The style went beyond visual art, however, and also inspired many Dutch architects. Jacob Oud in Rotterdam was one such practitioner, and he would go on to have a great influence on the manner in which social and cheap housing was built to try and solve the housing crisis that the city had refused to do anything about. The Witte Dorp estate showcases some of his work. This includes houses which are basically yellow, blue, and red cubes that invites one to imagine what it would be like to, well, live in a Mondrian painting. Actually, on that, there is a houseboat in Amsterdam that is a Mondrian painting. We might try and put that up on the website as well. Another famous project of Jakob Oud is the Kiefhoek neighborhood, a large yellowish 300 plus housing complex built for workers to provide pragmatic, convenient and cheap housing completed in the 1930s. Oud's influence would extend far beyond the Netherlands, particularly into Eastern Europe. Between the 20s and the onset of World War II, other prominent schools of architecture, such as functionalism, would also try and solve Rotterdam's issues of more modern working-class urban society living in a pre-industrial city. But still, it was widely recognized before World War II that Rotterdam needed a fundamental upgrade and redevelopment. The opportunity to fundamentally upgrade Rotterdam, however, would be delivered in the most horrific way imaginable. On the 14th of May 1940, during the German invasion of the Netherlands, Rotterdam's city centre was heavily bombed by the Luftwaffe, Germany's air force. More than 900 people were killed in the bombings and the resulting firestorm, which also destroyed roughly 25,000 homes and almost completely levelled the old city centre. Three years later, other outlying residential and industrial areas of Rotterdam were bombed by the Allies. This was undoubtedly a tragedy, but in an urban planning sense, it gave Rotterdam an opportunity after the war which other large cities in the Netherlands did not have. It could move more flexibly forward with a modern cityscape than would ever have been possible before. What remained of Rotterdam city centre was bulldozed, but for a few exceptionally important buildings that survived the bombings, such as the 15th century St. Lawrence Church, which had been basically destroyed but for its tower, the large yellow Bayenkorf shopping centre, with its sweeping window panelling across two of its faces, and the magnificent palatial city hall. In other words, there was now a blank canvas upon which those pent-up pre-war ideas of modernization could now be unleashed. The approach by Rotterdam to use the tragedy as an opportunity to rethink the city contrasts starkly with other destroyed European cities, such as Nuremberg and Warsaw where great attempts were made to rebuild according to historical accuracy. From the end of the war until the late 1960s, Rotterdam's pragmatic and nostalgia-free reconstruction, 
part of what is known as Vedopbau, or building anew after destruction, set the stage for some pretty fascinating architectural journeys. Beyond planning for a more modern world that included more space for things like cars and shopping centres, architects sought to create affordable, pragmatic housing within the city limits. As Professor of Heritage Studies at the Free University of Amsterdam, Hans Reynes put it, quote, The new city became a showpiece of modern town planning, and particularly the Leinbahn, the shopping mall designed by Vandenbroek and Buckemer, reached the architecture handbooks. Planners loved the clean, modern, and well-structured town that was so much better equipped for modern times than the crumbling and crowded city centres elsewhere. End quote. By the 1970s, however, those Dutch cities, which had not endured demolition by bombs and city plans, started to see and reap the increasing popularity of heritage and restoration. A general appreciation grew across the country and amongst its visitors for its architectural history, for the old 17th century style townhouses and warehouses, and there was a push to restore and maintain historic town centres. But Rotterdam's urban developmental journey had taken it on a completely different architectural track. Working with what they had then, a process of cosification began in Rotterdam, wherein architects sought to get input from inhabitants and city users as to how the needs of the city could be met while the architectural character moved away from what was now perceived as the grey modernism of the post-war Vederopbau rebuilding. Using a well-worn and fantastic Dutch word that means everything great, cosy, warm, inviting, atmospheric, they sought to make Rotterdam more gezellig. Piet Blom's cube houses or Kubuswoningen are the most famous example of what became a second phase of Rotterdam's reconstruction. His general idea was to create high up cozy residences in a city centre that maximised space and created an atmosphere of lightness. The plan was to build tilted cubic houses raised up on hexagonal pillars as if each house was a tree and the whole ensemble a forest. He sought to create a safe, livable village in the upper reaches of a functioning city, almost as if in mimicry of our sapient tree-dwelling ancestors, but you know, ones who drive cars and go to jobs. The first ones he built were in Helmond, for which he originally planned 188 cubes surrounding a public theatre with a car park underneath it all. He met resistance from the local council, though, for the plan, so he took out the car park part of it and reduced it to 60 houses. Still unable to convince them, he was able to convince Minister of Housing and Spatial Planning and co-founder of the political party D66, Hans Grouters, who came from Helmond and was positively drawn to the idea. In 1974, he subsidized Blom to build an entire three cubic houses to start with. Drawing more funds from the project's recognition as experimental housing, Blom was eventually able to build 18 of the trees, so it was more of a copse than a forest, but nonetheless, he did get to build the theater. Unfortunately, though, the theater burned down in 2011. Now, if you have seen the more famous cubic houses in Rotterdam, which we'll get to in a moment, they are very yellow. The ones in Helmond are strikingly different, wood brown and green veneer, 
actually encourages the idea of a weird, pixelated bit of nature. From this headway that he made in Helmond, Blom got the support needed to build 55 more of the cubic houses in Rotterdam city centre on an elevated street called the Oferblak. In the end, he was able to build 38 houses and two so-called super cubes. One can argue that the quiet village-like space that was created on the Oferblak by the cubes does exist. However, the project neither fulfilled the city's needs for practical inner city housing, each cube being on a 54.7 degree slant and therefore having the most useless cupboard space in the world, and actually the storage space had to be put in the hexagonal tree trunks, which also house the staircases, nor were they very popular. While the city remained an architect's playground and innovation flourished, Rotterdam still sought solutions to the same issues, how to create a cosy, functional but livable city catering to modern needs. In the 21st century, Rotterdam's dedication to development has continued and since we have to get on to talking about other architecture around the Low Countries, I just want to touch quickly upon one last building that was opened there in 2014, the Markthal, the Market Hall. Built really close to the Cubic Houses and the St. Lawrence Church, the Markthal is a combined social, commercial, residential and functional city building that also tips its hat at the history and heritage of the city. It looks like a giant barn with a glass face or when looking at it you can imagine a horseshoe standing on its two ends so the curve pointed to the sky and the gap in the middle filled with glass panels the outer horseshoe part is lined with residential apartments of different area sizes looking both out of the city or into the building itself behind the glass facade as if you've just walked through the upturned horseshoe, is a great whopping market hall full of many different kinds of shops and stands, restaurants, bars, cheese, chocolate, nut stalls, and much, much more. It is a vibrant, buzzing place from open until close. Once inside, just imagine again that you are standing in a giant horseshoe-shaped barn and you look up at the curved ceiling, you are hit by the bright and detailed imagery of fruits, insects, flowers, seeds, and other natural objects set on a spectral blue-gray-green background. It is almost as if you are getting a snapshot of a festive garden through a magnifying glass. The image was created by Dutch artists Arno Koenen and Iris Roskam and spans a whopping 11,000 square meters. They created it digitally, of course, and the file was so large, 1.47 terabytes, that the same special servers that Pixar uses for its films had to be employed to process it. It is displayed on 4,000 aluminium panels, and after its installation, it was realized that when a full crowd was in the hall, what with the curvature of the roof and these panels, the sound would reverberate in such a way as to risk literally deafening people. To solve this, tiny holes have to be pricked across all 11,000 square meters of it. Lastly, just on the functionality of the Markthal, the first part of it that was constructed was a four-story parking garage beneath it. That is a modern city thing. 
However, prior to the construction, thorough archaeological digs were conducted which revealed a lot from the city's long past. Here was a chance for the heritage aspect of the city's identity to be recognized and celebrated. If you go down from the market hall into the car park below, decorating the escalator shaft is a colorful timeline of major events in Rotterdam's history. When you come out onto each level of the car park then, you will pass exhibitions of the artifacts and the items found on those digs. These connect this most modern piece of Rotterdam cityscape with its immense history as a fascinating urban environment. We'll be back after this break. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Have you ever sat in a science classroom and looked at a model of atoms arranged into a crystal and thought, you know what, if I made that just a little bit bigger, I bet it would make a really cool building? No? Well, me neither. But that's because you and I, dear listeners, we lack the creative vision which separates us mere mortals from architectural geniuses such as Andre Vatican and Andre and Jean Polak the brains behind one of the most iconic buildings of not only the Low Countries, but also of Europe, the Atomium in Brussels. Situated on the Heysel Plateau, about 7 kilometres northwest of central Brussels, the Atomium looms over the city. It is a massive modernist construction, measuring 102 metres tall at its highest point. Atomium consists of nine shiny metallic spheres, each one about 18 metres in diameter, which are connected to each other by a lattice of shiny metallic tubes. It's very shiny and metallic, in case you didn't realise. Taken as a whole, atomium is a representation of a unit cell of an iron crystal, which has been magnified by 160 billion times. It is a striking piece of architecture, built to be the centrepiece for Expo 58, the 1958 World's Fair, which was held in Brussels. The Atomium was pretty much conceived to be Brussels' very own Eiffel Tower, a monument built when the eyes of the world were firmly set on the city, which would show off the prowess of Belgian technology and engineering, and most importantly, which would stand as a symbol for its age. In order to understand just why and how this giant shiny atomic building came to be, we need to cast our minds back to the early 1950s as Belgium, Europe and the world was busy picking up the pieces after the destruction of the Second World War. Although the war in Europe had ended with the defeat of Nazi Germany in May 1945, combat in the Pacific theatre had raged on for a few more months, only coming to an end after the United States dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan in August 1945. The dropping of the atomic bombs ushered in a frightening new era, the atomic age. Suddenly, it had become possible for a single bomb falling from a single plane 
to instantly vaporize an entire city. When the USSR developed its own atomic bomb in 1949, the world became gripped with fear. Europe was split by the Iron Curtain. If the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the West ever heated up, the devastating effects of these new atomic weapons could bring about death and destruction on a level never before seen, and maybe even bring about an end to civilization as it was known. It was a pretty scary time to be alive. In stark contrast to this existential sword of Damocles which hung over everything, however, the post-war era was also a time of growing international cooperation, particularly between Western Europe and the United States. Eager to ensure that communism would not spread further into the European continent, American Secretary of State George Marshall developed a plan to rebuild Western Europe and its economies. Under this so-called Marshall Plan, between 1948 and 52, the United States pumped billions of dollars into Western Europe, sending around $1.1 billion in grants and loans to the Netherlands and about $560 million to Belgium to help rebuild all those damaged roads, railways, ports, waterways, bridges, tunnels, buildings, factories and agricultural areas. Within a remarkably short span of time, Western European economies began to grow at unprecedented levels, and cooperation across the continent and continents saw the creation of international organizations such as the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, the Organization for European Economic Cooperation, and the European Coal and Steel Community, which were precursors for the European Union. There was a growing sense of optimism, whereby people believed that through international cooperation, it might be possible to ensure that this continent, which had not once but twice nearly completely destroyed itself within the first half of the century, could avoid yet another catastrophic conflict. In 1953, US President Dwight Eisenhower gave a famous speech to the United Nations known as Atoms for Peace, where he attempted to take these feelings of optimism and use them to dispel people's fears of the atomic age. In closing the speech, Eisenhower said, quote, The United States pledges before you, and therefore before the world, its determination to help solve the fearful atomic dilemma, to devote its entire heart and mind to find the way by which the miraculous inventiveness of man shall not be dedicated to his death, but consecrated to his life. End quote. The idea of the speech was that with international cooperation, this powerful new technology could be used for peaceful purposes to benefit people around the world through advancing medicine and other scientific research, agriculture, and the generation of electricity. Following this speech, Eisenhower launched his Atoms for Peace program, which saw the creation of the International Atomic Energy Agency and also allowed the sharing of other non-military atomic technology, material and training with other powers around the world, including Belgium. It was in this context that Expo 58 was held in Brussels. The theme of the event was Evaluation of the World for a More Humane World with a special focus on atomic energy. Atomium was built to be a symbol of this new, peaceful atomic era. Within the spheres of the structure were exhibition spaces, 
dedicated to showing off the benefits of nuclear power for the world. Despite the spirit of international cooperation which inspired its construction, neither of the two biggest nuclear powers in the world, the United States or the USSR, used space in the atomium, deciding instead to talk about their nuclear contributions in their own national pavilions. So much for international cooperation. Having said that, the spaces inside Atomium did highlight European contributions to nuclear energy, with exhibits from Britain and France showing off nuclear power plant designs, from Italy showing the contributions of their National Nuclear Research Committee, from Germany showing the use of German steel in the making of nuclear technology, and of course, the host nation, Belgium, which showed off how the uranium which was used to power all of this was coming from Congo. Hmm. Now, the story of Belgium's colonial exploitation in Congo is long, sordid, and way too much for us to dive into in this particular episode. One aspect of it, however, is really important to talk about in regards to atomium, which is the role that Congolese uranium, under Belgian administration, played in the development of the atomic bomb. The uranium which was used during the Manhattan Project, and which was eventually used in the bombs which were dropped on Japan, had been sourced from a particular mine in Congo called Shinkolobwe. Shinkolobwe mine was a unique source of uranium, the likes of which has never been found again anywhere in the world. To give you an idea of just how much uranium was in Shinkolobwe, if mines in the US or Canada find ores which have 0.3% uranium in them, that's considered good enough for use. The mine at Shinkolobwe produced ores with 65% uranium, meaning that at the time, people thought that half the world's uranium was located in just that one mine. Shinkolobwe was controlled by an Anglo-Belgian company called UMHK. When the uranium that they had stockpiled in the United States proved insufficient for the Manhattan Project, the mine was reopened, with Congolese workers being forced to labour in terrible conditions with no choice in the matter for the equivalent of 20 cents a day, paying high taxes and not being told of the dangers of working with radioactive material. The stories which come from Shinkalobwe mine are horrendous. The granddaughter of one worker, a woman called Sylvie Bambemba Muela, recounts how her grandfather suffered so badly from radiation poisoning working at the mine that a piece of brain came out of his mouth. It was his employer, UMHK, who was so proudly exhibiting the peaceful and humanity-saving aspects of atomic power in Atomium during Expo 58. I'm pretty sure that the UMHK exhibit didn't educate the thousands of international visitors about radiation poisoning of their workers in Congo. Now, this is not to say, however, that life in Belgian Congo was completely neglected during Expo 58. The Ministry of Colonies decided to use the Expo as an opportunity for Belgium to show the world what a wonderful colonial benefactor it had been, particularly when it came to the civilizing of primitive peoples. They built a village at the Expo known as Congo Rama, consisting of rounded mud huts with straw roofs and dirt floors. Then they put 598 people of either Congolese, Rwandan or Burundi origin into this exhibit and fenced it off, 
thereby making it a human zoo attraction for the visitors to the fair to take in. After a couple of weeks, the people in this exhibit were so sick of the abuses they received on a daily basis from the visitors that they refused to take any further part in it. Now, the reason why I'm telling you this is just to imagine the juxtaposition of it all. You had this super futuristic atomium building towering over a deliberately designed faux primitive village. It truly was symbolic of its age, just not perhaps in the way the designers had intended. Atomium still stands today, this massive, shiny, metallic atom built for an expo that was to celebrate the evaluation of the world for a more humane world. And so it remains, a paradoxical testament to a time when humanity's most noble ideals were often built on foundations of inhumanity. Now to the final piece in our portfolio of Low Countries architecture, we head north of Brussels to the city of Antwerp. There you will find another amazing structure that demands the eye's attention as it scans the cityscape. To describe this building, it is as if a monolithic rock from Stonehenge has been turned into shimmering glass, blown up about a hundred times its size, and then turned on its side. Then... That rock has been plonked on top of a beautiful disused firehouse. So in one, you have an entirely modern, almost alien structure sitting atop something that absolutely fits our understanding and expectations of historical buildings in Europe. This crazy structure is the Hafenhaus or Port Authority Building. Antwerp hosts the second largest port in Europe, handling just over a quarter of container goods coming in and out of Europe. From the 1990s, the Port Authority had been housed in several different offices in the city. By the first decade of the 21st century, however, it was clear that these had become too small for the 500-odd staff, and the opportunity emerged for a central building to be constructed that could house both the administrative and technical departments of the Port Authority together. There was an eye to the future from the beginning. The building and its construction had to meet certain ecological and sustainability requirements. A site was chosen, being the Mexico Island in the city's northern interior harbour, known as the Cuttendike Dock. Being an island meant that all the construction materials could be delivered by water, practical and more environmentally friendly. However, there already stood on this island a magnificent large old squat and rectangular building. This building from the 1920s had its own historic virtue, being a replica of a Hanseatic League house. It had most recently been a fire station, but it was now disused. Nonetheless, this old building remained protected, and the city decided that the new Hafenhaus would have to incorporate it into the new structure. The challenge was set and the Flemish and Antwerp governments, together with the Port Authority itself, opened up the competition for entries, inviting architects from around the world to submit their ideas. The then Port of Antwerp's president, Mark van Peel, later said, quote, 
there was only one rule laid down in the architectural competition, namely that the original building had to be preserved. There were no other requirements imposed for the positioning of the new building. The jury was therefore pleasantly surprised when all five shortlisted candidates opted for a modern building above the original one. The design by Zaha Hadid was the most brilliant, end quote. Zaha Hadid at the time was considered to be one of the world's most esteemed architects. The design, as described just a few moments ago, this strange modern object sitting astride a large historic building is certainly striking at first glance. I remember my first impression was that I was witnessing an alien invasion. Martians in a glass ship had just landed on some random building in Antwerp. There is something to this in what Hadid intended. The great glass structure on top does represent the bow of a ship, but more a classical water-based vessel rather than one from space. In this regard, the glass gives a modern perspective or angle to the identity of a port or shipping house. In fact, the first step was in consultation with a restoration and heritage company called Origin. Historical research and understanding of the city's shipping history was the basis for much of this. The new glass ship bow is positioned at a north-south axis in line with the Kattendike dock, just as a ship would moor alongside it. Furthermore, in the historical research, they discovered that the historic Hanseatic-style firehouse was originally intended to have a great tower rising up from it. The positioning of Hadid's new addition also pays tribute to this never-realized plan. As for the glass and exterior paneling, some of which are opaque, it is glazed and uneven. In the words of Zaha Hadid architects, the intention was for it to, quote, ripple like the waves and reflect the changing tones and colors of the city's sky, end quote. All very suitably maritimey, and if I may say, having spent more than just a few moments staring at this building, I think they absolutely nailed it. There is also something non-naval to the shape of the building. Forget ships for a moment. You could look at it and seeing the way that the great structure both floats and ripples above the old building, you could easily imagine that a giant diamond had fallen from the sky and come to rest, perched precariously on top of the old fire station. This interpretation is also not accidental. The ripple effect occurs because the facets to the south are flat, whereas to the north they become more 3D. This was done specifically to make it look like a diamond. This is once again a hearkening to Antwerp's past in recognition of the city's historical and contemporary role in the global diamond industry, which dates back to the 16th century when Antwerp first became a world port, as well as the world center of the lucrative diamond trade. Worth mentioning here as well that many of the things we said about the Congo and uranium could also be applied to this. Sadly, the new Hafenhaus of Antwerp would be Zaha Hadid's final contribution to global architecture in her life. While being treated for bronchitis in March 2016, Hadid suffered a fatal heart attack around six months before the building was opened in September. It is the only state or government building she designed and completed, although her firm and other design projects have been continued posthumously. In memoriam, the key and public square outside the Hafenhaus has since been renamed Zaha Hadidplan. These examples of Low Country's architecture that we've talked about in this episode 
while only a very select few of the mind-boggling array of interesting buildings that abound this marvelous swamp, each display strikingly unique qualities. At the same time, they all share the characteristic that they each reflect the values, stories, needs, and issues borne by the societies from which they come. The pyramid tells us a lot of the French occupation of the Netherlands, the atomium of the post-war dilemmas and contradictions that wrought Europe and the world. The housing and livability issues that faced Rotterdam prior to the war were still issues long after the city's destruction during the war. And the Port Authority building in Antwerp reflects the pride that European societies put in their heritage, using buildings as physical markers to tell them who they are and where they come from, as well as where they are going. In fact, in general, the nature of all the architecture in the Low Countries represents all these different facets. So often it can feel as if you are visiting an outdoor museum with beautiful, ancient, canal-side townhouses leaning over the sometimes sunlit but often rainy water. But we hope that by talking about some of the more recent additions to this region's architectural landscape, it has become clear that even with all that heritage and pride in the past, there is always an eye to the future in low country societies, and often that vision is expressed in the tall things that are built in this oh-so-low place. Do you want to know more about Flemish and Dutch history and culture? Visit www.the-low-countries.com. This podcast is made by Republic of Amsterdam Radio.